Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. So last night, which was February 12th, we're recording on February 13th, uh, my wife and I went to see Herbie Hancock. He happened to be playing two blocks from our house, which is not a thing that happens often where <laughs> some, I mean, Greensboro doesn't get a whole lot of great national bands anyway. But when we found out Herbie was playing two blocks from us, we were like, yeah, let's get tickets. And I have to admit, I know of him. I, I know some of his 70s stuff. Right. But, you know, I'm not an expert, but I just know that that was something we should probably just go see. So you knew I was going to see Herbie Hancock. However, yeah. I got the program. I had no idea I was going to be seeing Vinny Kaliuta. And I got really excited. I took a picture of the program, texted it to Hunter. And what did you, just, what did you say to me? Let me pull up my text. Yeah. <laughs> so Jeff sends me just a picture of the program. And it says, Vinny. And I said, you motherfucker. You watch every fucking second. You are in the presence of perhaps the greatest of all time. Yeah, and I know how much you think of Vinny, and and I have always thought a lot of the guy too. When I've watched like different things on YouTube, I, there's not a lot of stuff he's on in my collection. He's on a couple Frank Zappa records I have. Bye. He's on a Megadeth record system has failed. Probably one of the stranger things in his uh, discography for sure. But he's on a lot of stuff that I think both Hunter and I agree uh, isn't totally amazing. You know, Joni Mitchell and later Sting, and you know, Gino Vanelli. Was that? Gino Vanelli. Gino Vanelli, sure. The you know what's go- crazy though? Like I like I don't like that later Sting stuff at all. But he's on Ten Sumner's Tales, and dude, he does some like super out there stuff on that record. I can believe it, and like yeah, not all Sting is bad. Uh, we don't want to say that. We're both police the fans mu- too. Yeah, the non drum music on that record is is pretty dull. Yeah, but it's just weird how far out he goes like conceptually. But I got to tell you, so so I, I was kind of prepared to see greatness. Uh, I also texted Ken Golden, and then I was done texting and ready, just kind of sitting there vibing for the show, just kind of meditating for 10 minutes. And all, all of his band were great. I don't want to get into a full review, but the, the entire band slayed. They were so dialed in. Uh, they got, had a guy on the bass named uh, James Genus, a guy on guitar named Lionel Lewicki, who I'd never, I'd never heard of before, but he was incredible. He was playing some really cosmic stuff. Uh, did a lot of things with effects that you know you, you think you're hearing keyboards and then you look oh no okay it's it's him and he was amazing a guy named Terrace Martin who uh, uh, is known for production stuff all kinds of things great keyboards great sax Herbie Hancock of course Slade he was amazing it was one of those shows where you're just like you don't know what to watch kind of like that new King Crimson lineup where you're just like right, right. who do I who do I focus on here but dude Vinny Kaliuta oh god. Yeah. I, yeah, no. I, I really, I've seen a lot of great drummers. I've seen all the, you know, the current Crimson drummers. I've seen Bill Bruford. I've seen Neil Peart several times. I've seen a lot of great drummers. And this was probably the best drumming display I have ever seen. Yeah, he, he smokes all those guys. I mean, he's a, he I does. Mean, really, he smokes, he's, like, he's amazing. He's like from a different planet. No, he's, yeah, all these guys are that I named are top tier. This guy is sort of the, the next tier beyond that. I mean, no, no yeah. joke, no hyperbole. He was incredible, and I and, and, and the, dude, the, he is like fairly, you know, late into his career, yeah. and he's still playing with that much invention and fire. Oh no, he I mean, was, it's amazing. He was dialed in like you wouldn't believe, and yeah. and um, the, it, there were so many moments where I just was like laughing to myself, shaking my head. Put my head in my hands and going. I just can't even believe this. This is this is 
provoking a response that I just find, I just find this unbelievable. So I have to laugh, you know, I mean, that's how good he was. He's so fluid for one. He's very, very, very fast with his fills and just kind of the way he's moving around his kit. Like it's, it's just something to behold. I, I can't totally describe it. It's, it's acrobatic. It's, it's hyper finessed, but there's a lot of feel, you know, it's always, the flow is incredible. And with all of his movements and all of all of his tastiness, and he's and a lot of the stuff they played last night was on the kind of like busier, more active end of jazz bordering on fusion, you know. And he was all over that kit all the time. And the best one of his moves was when he would like in the middle of something, he'd put his glasses back on the bridge of his nose as he's playing this complicated stuff. And his glasses were falling off all the time or in danger of falling off his face. He really should get a strap. But it was it was really humorous to watch this and like witness not only not only like the most amazing inhuman drum performance you've ever seen, but like the guy like struggling with his glasses and just keeping it going, you know, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your experience with him just as a drummer and, and as somebody who you know of course has digested a whole ton of music like so the first time i ever heard of him it was like right before i started playing the drums and i bought a an issue of modern drummer and it had the year in polls in it and um he got best session drummer and one i didn't know what a session drummer was and i didn't know who vinnie Caliuta was and then i started like doing research i was like Man, none of these guys playing bands, they must not be that good. Because <laughs> if they were good, they would have a band. <laughs> right. And so, like, fast forward a couple of years, when I was playing drums and getting serious about the instrument, Mike Portnoy was a uh, cover story, modern drummer, I think. If he wasn't the cover story, then maybe Tim Alexander was, and Mike Portnoy was a major feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, Joe's Garage kept coming up. And that was that was my introduction to Vinny. Okay, and that that's some pretty rhythmically advanced stuff. And then um, after that, like I got the Buddy Rich tribute where he, Dave Weckl, and Steve Gadd share a stage. That should that shouldn't be allowed by law. <laughs> you know, like it's I, like a, like if a bomb dropped on that building, like the development of like fusion drumming would have like reached an impasse. Yeah, you mentioned polyrhythms and like the, the, the stuff they were doing last night was really complex and and um, it, I'd say it was mostly composed. There's but of, with with that kind of material, the kind of stuff Herbie specializes in, there's a lot of room for you know yeah. finessing something, yeah. massaging yeah. it a little bit differently than you might have the night before. And of course, you know, just pure improv uh, plays into some of this. But I've never seen anybody just. I don't know. I'm, I'm speechless, man. I, you know, his 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 dexterity with polyrhythms and and just the constant invention and the constant surprise. Like, it is. It's this like this stream of ideas, but it but it never stops. It's hard to imagine like an idea immediately coming to mind and your body being able to translate it at that moment. And it's like whatever he conceptualizes. He's able to translate in a physical form. Yeah, he, he definitely is one of those musicians, those top flight musicians, where he seems like a vessel for something a bit more cosmic. Right. That that's speaking through him. I mean, no joke. I, I would go. I'd go. I would travel now and pay good money to see the guy. I you know I I need to see him again. Just I'm, to, I'm glad that you left a believer. 
Oh, yeah. I just again, I wish <laughs> I wish I could go out and like buy a bunch of stuff that he's on, but I can't because yeah. I don't like most of it. Again, I I'll, I'll probably pick up a couple more Zapper records he's on. He's and... literally played on like who know? I mean, I don't know. A couple thousand records. Yeah, I looked up his. Yeah, I looked up his resume this morning. It's it's pretty daunting. Um, yeah, and and, don't, and for me, daunting in the sense of like, don't like that. Don't think I'll ever like that. <laughs> uh, don't want to buy that. You know, like I mean, that's not yeah. being narrow minded. I don't I don't think anybody would accuse us of being that. But yeah, just that's just the the way of Vinny. But hey, man. Bottom line, go see Herbie Hancock live when and if you can, especially if Vinny's on drums. Yes. Man, but hey, Jeff, you know what we should do now? What's that? We should talk about music we like. <laughs> and one band in particular. Radical Research 26 finds us in British Columbia, first in Victoria, and then to Vancouver, where the band No Means No originated and then moved to. This is a band formed by brothers Rob Wright on bass and vocals and John Wright on drums and vocals. They are amazing. They are also one of our mutual favorite bands. And here's the thing about Hunter and I's friendship is that when you meet someone who deeply loves things like nuclear death and King Crimson and Fate's Warning and Afflicted and In the Woods and Mind Over Four, and then you also find out that they love No Means No, that's kind of a big deal. It's a big deal, man. 
in the world of bromance. <laughs> in the world of bromance. You know when what I mean? Like, a, when you meet a man that loves no means no, you become his friend. <laughs> no, I just think it's one of those things, though, when you and I were, like, you know, first getting to know each other and getting to understand the intersecting levels that our musical tastes kind of ran in, it was like when No Means No came up, it was like, geez, and them too, wow. Because you don't meet people every day that absolutely love this band, that love that, some of that other kind of stuff, I guess. You know? Yeah, that's um, true. Probably, I mean, they come from a different world in a lot of ways. You know I mean, they kind of come from a punk world. Let, let me ask you this right off the bat, and we're going to listen to a ton of No Means No. We're probably going to play more snippets in this episode than we've ever played before, yeah, uh, sure. just simply because we couldn't limit it to a, a mere 10 or 12. We're going to do about 16, and we could do 45 easily. But let's get into the punk rock thing. They are considered punk rock, or if you want hardcore or even post-hardcore, but for me, and I know you and I split ways here, but punk rock has always kind of had a negative coloration for me. I have a lot of respect for it. I even like a small slice of it, I guess. But ultimately, I've just never been a fan of of the genre in general. Like, I, you know, and I know I've pissed off plenty of people when I say that. But like, you know, if you think the Sex Pistols and Ramones are amazing bands, I'm never going to try to talk you out of it. But there's just no appeal to me. Uh, and yeah. I know that there's more to punk rock. So may, you're more open to it. And you, you sort of dabble in it a lot more. And, and you listen to quite a few more bona fide punk bands. So, well, I'm, I'm, so I'm almost patently uninterested in early American and early British punk. To me, that is nothing but like a reboot of 50s rock and roll. I actually think it sounds reactionary and kind of dull. What I'm interested in are the fringe types and the people that sort of took advantage of the freedom of punk after punk itself as a you know a codified genre was dead post punk um, yeah post punk but i mean you can roll up so many things underneath that umbrella and i mean no means no is is one of those bands i mean they take you know like the sardonic wit of punk the like the caustic aspect but then they they graft it onto something much more experimental and, and, and much more disciplined, I would say, too. Yeah, and I, I think it's fair to call them a punk band, and I, I don't shy away from that as a fan of them, but, um, because if you listen to their first two albums, Mama and Sex Mad, there's a whole lot more punk going on there right. uh, than what they would eventually kind of become. They would take that foundation, at least, and really morph it and mutate it and, and just become the band that, that we really love. Before we get too much further into it, let's just take a listen to something else. The, the way that we're going to play snippets tonight, too, is not our usual sort of chronological, anal-retentive way. We're just going to have fun and just blast it out. The no means no shuffle. So the no means no shuffle. This is, uh, this is a song called Victory from the Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed album. Prayer on a song 
So that's from their third album from 1988, Small Parts, Isolated and Destroyed, the song called Victory. By that time, they were really already starting to expand their song lengths and their arrangements and, and getting quite epic. I heard a ton of post-punk in that song. Like all in like some sort of vaguely like goth overtones too. Yeah. Yeah. They would go there. They would go there on another song called Real Love mm-hmm. uh, with that goth overtone. Yeah, they were just really starting to bring in a lot of stuff and not really just worried about cohering to anything punk or hardcore or whatever. I mean Like even their um their appearance is obviously sort of a middle finger to you know to the to the the dogma of punk rock let me conform the sort of ingrained conformity of punk rock fashion probably a good time for this story this had to come up i was in a band in iowa city in the late 80s and early 90s called flesh dig don't don't sue me for the name but it was a great experience we did a lot of original music we we recorded several demos and played with some cool bands uh, our guitarist had a lot of connections in the Iowa City club scene because he had been in a band previously. And he got, for our very, very first gig ever, he got us an opening slot with No Means No. And this was uh, October of 1989. And I, at the time, was only getting familiar with sort of things outside of, you know, the metal thing that was happening in, in mid to late 80s that I was completely immersed in. So I had heard this name, No Means No, but never heard never heard the band. Uh, I knew this was a big deal we were opening for them because the other guys in my band were like super, you know, couldn't, couldn't believe we were getting this opportunity. It was really exciting. Anyway, so we show up at the club and my impression when I met Rob was like, huh, He's just, he all, even as young as he might have been then, like he always seemed like a dad figure because he looked like a dad, right? Yeah. And, and then his brother, always. John, his brother, John looked like this pencil neck geek. I mean, like, the, not, you know, these two guys, they were the most unassuming of unassuming guys. Yes. We talked to them a good bit. I remember them telling us that the great San Francisco earthquake had happened like a couple of weeks prior and they had had trouble getting uh, the wrong record for the road. Uh, because Alternative Tentacles, Jello right. Biafra's label, which they were on and, and figure quite heavily into their story. There's something about that I remember anyway. I don't, I don't remember the details, but there was something about that. And uh, they gave us cassettes of um, Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed with the Day Everything Became Nothing uh, EP on it. Those two things were already being kind of put together as... Uh, what did they call that? The Day Everything Became Isolated and Destroyed? They destroyed, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah so... You know, if anybody's turned on by no means no and they don't have anything by them, that's a great little uh, that's a starter, yeah. Album EP started to get. It certainly impressed me, but I guess the point of my story is is his look was one thing. He got up on stage and we were all, you know, we had a great show, we had a great local crowd, we we did well. We were all pretty happy and um I you know, I was just hanging out with my bandmates uh, on the floor watching No Means No and immediately immediately they just blew us away. I mean, it it was unbelievable. (laughs) And I think because of their unassuming nature, and then they come on and they play so ferociously and so dialed in and so disciplined. It was... Discipline's the word that keeps coming up. It was scary and it was frightening and it was fun and it was joyous. And it was like, I knew at that point, I knew that this band was going to be a favorite band of mine for the rest of my life. And here I am. 49 years old, and they're still yep. one of my favorite bands. I mean, I, I just wouldn't want to live without this band. Uh, so, yeah, that, I, I love the unassuming nature of how they look versus how they sound. Yeah, and they were touring for Wrong, and they played a bunch of songs from Wrong. I remember they played The Tower. 
Uh, Ooh, we're going to hear we're, we're going to hear that in a little bit. Uh, they also played "It's Catching Up," which we're going to listen to right now from the 1989 album "Wrong." It's catching up. We'll talk a lot more about "Wrong" uh, right after this, and probably throughout the episode. So that was a track off their classic 1989 record, Wrong. Actually, that's one of the first No Means No songs that I ever heard. And that kind of became burned in my brain as like the emblematic No Means No sound for a little while. I think like I think it is. I, I think what yeah. they're doing there is kind of what you would give people as, hey, what's the what's the No Means No blueprint if, if there was yeah. one? Well, that's it. Yeah. Because you, like, you get the ferocity, you get the mathematics, you get the, the spite, you get all that. It's it's deadly serious, but also there's always this sardonic, sarcastic humor there. Always. And and you and I talk about this a fair amount on the show, I think because we like bands like this. But this is a band where every member's contribution is absolutely critical to the whole. Totally. Like 
I mean, th- this band, like, they all depend on each other for the, you know, the comprehensive greatness that is No Means No. Totally. And I remember seeing them on this, in this era. Unfortunately, it was the only time I saw them, but, but that's mm. another story. They were like a well-oiled machine, and they're a trio. Right. They're a trio. And the and they're road dogs, too, though. To, they were always road dogs, absolutely. They, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of that precision and that attack and that sort of like all-for-one, one-for-all thing and every, every cog being such an important part of that, the larger machine, they had a third person always helping them out, especially on the road. And in this era, it was a guitarist named Andy Kerr. Now, of course. They would often just have fun with the credits on their albums, uh, especially where the guitarist was concerned. I don't know why they did that. I, I, I always suspected it was just a way to kind of keep the, the kind of brotherhood, brotherness going of, of, the, of the core, the core two. Right. But you'd have stuff like none of your fucking business as, as the person who played guitar. <laughs> uh, they'd also credit guitar on one album as um, just in, in quote marks and then empty space between the quote marks, just like nothing, no one. You got to love that. And uh, you got to love a guitarist who's willing to sit back and let them do that, <laughs> even though he yeah. played on the album. Yeah. Uh, but the guy's name was Andy Kerr. Yeah, much, much due credit to him. And we should also mention that later Tom Holliston came into the band and played in the band even longer than Andy up until uh, the band's demise. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, even though they kind of, you know, came out of the punk rock scene that we were talking about earlier, and even though they have all, they, they have all these other elements that, um, that, make the whole um like there the i guess there is a sort of thread um that underscores their music and and that is the sort of like mathematical approach to rhythm and, and not just mathematical but like surprising as well i mean like their um their songs are like rhythmic landmines sometimes it contain all sorts of weird modulations and like unexpected odd meters um and i, I mean you can hear like when we were playing um it's catching up that first riff, I was like, you know, Kevin Huffnagel from Dysrhythmia loves No Means No. Oh, yeah, okay. You could you could hear that. You know, you could hear you can hear it in Breadwinner, and you can hear it in all sorts of successors to to that sound, and the, you know, in, in math rock in general. I think the thing you're talking about how how the rhythms and the surprising attack of those, and and how just how they kind of morph uh, through the song. I think that that's another thing where I'm always comparing them in my mind in a lot of ways to fellow Canadians Voivod and Rush. Right. Because you talk about amazing on-the-dime rhythm sections that are surprising and mathematical, acrobatic. You know, I think, I think you know, No Means No fits into that sort of Canadian way of doing things. <laughs> right? D- yeah. Canadians do technique well, man. <laughs> yeah, it is like a, an indigenous approach to rhythm. Yeah. You know? Let's check out a song called Ghosts from their 0 plus 2 equals 1 record. This was the record that followed up Wrong. It came out two years later. In some ways, it's their most accomplished in the sense of all the places they visited, texturally, emotionally, musically. Would you agree with that at all? Only at gunpoint would I commit to this, but if I had to choose one No Means No record probably be this one okay simply because it does more than any uh, it you know like you said it addresses all those hallmarks of no means no sound but it like it does more than any other one no means no record let's take a listen to a little bit of a song called ghosts
thin voices call out of thin air. Do you really care? Do you really care? There is no reason to be afraid. All of the bodies have been made to rest. Nobody passes the test of time. The long climb into thin air. Thin air. There is no one there. without a sound by voices buried underground there is no meaning to be found do you really care do you really care do you really care do you really care, you really care? there is no one Yeah, wow. Where they're joining up there on that last attack—that's uh, that's part of that precision we're talking about. It is. Yeah, that's great. And you great. hear them start. You hear them, you know, flirting with uh, that goth influence, however remote. Again, there in the the creepy eeriness, yeah. and it like I'm never quite sure where they land, uh, like on the spectrum between irony and sincerity. <laughs> I'm always a little suspicious because their tongue. <laughs> It's so often in cheek, yeah. but some of that, the eeriness of it really does sound, you know, heartfelt. Uh, you mentioned earlier how they were such road dogs, and they really were. And on their final album from uh, 2006, I think it is, um, the, yeah, the album's is. called All Roads Lead to Ausfart. And there's a picture kind of tellingly of, of what I can assume is the band van from the back. So you get this sense of them sort of like driving off into the distance. And you know that engine's probably just going to die any moment. Um, (laughs) They're still punk as hell, traveling in a van all across, you know, Europe and North America. But I thought it was interesting they put that in that album because this album followed their ninth album, which was called One, uh, like six years later. So they were their output was really starting to diminish quite a bit by that time. And, you know, you could kind of hear that the, the road was near the end. All Roads Lead to Ausfart is good. It's not great. There are a couple songs I tend to skip or just not care much about. But the high points, you know, just show that they still had something. I mean, there's a song called In Her Eyes that I think is quality. Uh, Heaven is the Dust Beneath My Shoes is one of their great, what I'll call their story songs. You know, those longer songs where they just were patient and like 
telling a story, laying it out. That's another one of those. The Hawk Killed the Punk is like a three-minute thing that's really fun. We're going to listen to a little bit of a song called I See a Mansion in the Sky, another one of their great slowly unfolding dramatic story songs. Uh, This is from their final album from 2006. Incidentally, they broke up 10 years later. It took them 10 years to really officially knock it on the head. I, I imagine they felt that they had kind of done all they could at that point. This is I See a Mansion in the Sky. you do uh, they sound a bit weary on this album to me uh no i i hear it throughout yeah not on that song it, it, it does it does have moments but and i think what what we just played is one of them but even still like i feel like there's a bit of fatigue setting in even on the best moments on this record okay yeah no i First, hear that i hear that i mean again i think it's because anything they did on ausfart or even one, which I, which is a record I've really come to love more and more over the years. Um, even that, you're starting to hear uh, repetition, maybe. Right. In a way that you didn't before. I mean, the, but the thing is, is like, 
it, it can be forgiven because they peeled through so many ideas so quickly for a while. Yeah. You know, it's like it just it kind of stands to reason to think that like there would be an exhaustion of those ideas. Right. At some point. Yeah, for sure. Look, 10 albums of what, 30 years? Yes. Yeah. More than 30 years. They actually got together in 79. So it's we're talking about close to 40 years. (laughs) So I think in in all fairness. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. Uh, I think their last... I don't even know if I'd say great, but really good album. One that no no means no fan cannot be without. Um, is that a double negative? <laughs> One that no 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 means no, means no fan cannot no not be no without. Dance of the Headless Bourgeoisie. You've got to know that one. You've. <laughs> I mean it. No, I mean I mean you know. Um. <laughs> I. I. <laughs> no, I mean what what what's your what are your thoughts on that album? I love it. I think it is somewhat uneven. I don't think it's like just uniformly great. It, it was actually my introduction to the band. I, I um, wanted to ask you about that. So that, let's get into that. So, so what's funny about this band is that like you are like the essential protein in like the relationship that I have with this band because you opened for them and that was your introduction and then you paid it forward with a review of Dance of the Headless Bourgeoisie and Maniacs. And Nathan was in a band uh, prior to Canvas Solaris, and um, their drummer, Wade, was really, really into No Means No. Oh, yeah. um, and I'd heard about them, like, through Wade before. Um, but, you know, I mean, when you're young and you don't have a lot of money and, you know, you're trying to check out as much stuff as you can, some things just kind of get uh, neglected. No Means No was one of them. And then when you reviewed them, like, the bell went off. And, I, you know, it's funny. I bought that record at a media play. If you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> You've you know, mentioned Media um, Play before. Oh, the 90s. Yeah. I bought a lot of records at Media Play, <laughs> disclosure. But yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit that when I first heard it, I didn't, I don't know that I disliked it, but I didn't know what to think of it. Yeah. I didn't expect like the vocals to be as spoken as they were right. in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but over time, uh, it got its hooks in me. And, and Jeff and I totally agree on this point. The title track on that album has to be heard to be believed. We actually didn't feature it as a part of the show. It's a song that has to be heard in its entirety because it's it's a narrative piece. What Jeff and I call "No Means No" story songs, and it's just an amazing piece of music. Really, I also think that you don't. You're like if we played the end. Uh, you're not going to get it. We play the beginning. You're not going to totally get it. We play the climax. It doesn't have the impact unless you're in. Yeah, I mean, there's a cinematic scope to it, too, that can't be really like you can't convey the full effect of that song through a snippet. True that. But it's about it's a ransom song. And it basically, by the end, threatens all this horrible stuff. It's pretty tough to listen to. And then at the end, and that's the to me, that's the Tarantino part. Right. And then at the end, um, there's a there's a musical moment that when they kind of reveal why they're actually doing this, right? It's not for the money. It's not for any of this other stuff. Right. It's because we hate your fucking guts. And and maybe that's a spoiler, but so what? But at the end, then it turns into what I can kind of consider a Coen Brothers moment. There's a little yes. levity in the darkness. And um, there's some there's some other great songs in this album called, uh, there's one called The Rape. There's another one called The World Wasn't Built in a Day. Another, another of their great... Oh, that's, a, that's a great fucking song another of their great narrative moments i i think 
That one lyrically, conceptually, kind of seems to have some ties back to the day everything became nothing. Yes, absolutely. Okay, you get that too. Yeah. All yep. right. All right. But um, there's that sort of Nero fiddles while Rome burns kind of you know attitude in a lot of their lyrics. Definitely. Is it sort of like resolution? You know, to like entropy and chaos. This is the other thing I like about them. I I always kind of consider them really well read. I don't know for sure, but I'm just assuming that they're... they're no, they're a literate band for sure. Literate band, well read, deep thinkers, you know, very philosophical in a lot of their stuff. Let's move back to one of our favorite No Means No pieces, uh, the EP, The Day Everything Became Nothing. Uh, We mentioned the title track. We'll listen to a little bit of that in a bit. Uh, But this is a song from that EP called Forget Your Life. Heavy. Yeah. It almost flirts with an Aussie-era Sabbath heaviness, and not only in terms of the, the tenor and the mood, but also the minimalism of it. Yeah, and the willingness to lay some keyboards in there a little bit. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I think that's one of the reasons I, I fell in love with it was not just that show I saw that night, but like when I got that cassette home, I realized that things like you know Victory and Forget Your Life and Real Love were like these kind of really long things that felt like, yeah, they could have come from sabotage or something like that. Right, exactly. Um, obviously with their own Canadian, British Columbian twist, you know, we get we get all that. But that's a really good point. I really like that. But yeah, and that didn't come across live. These kind of songs to me work so much better in context of the albums. Oh, for certain. Let's stick with 1988 and let's stick with this period because 
The Day Everything Became Nothing EP and Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed were recorded around the same time, I think even at the same time, uh, and just segmented out into EP and album. Uh, And we're going to jump to the Small Parts album now and a song called Real Love, kind of very companion-like to both Forget Your Life and Victory, I think. Yes. one of the more comprehensive no means no songs in terms of like folding in all the things that make them great um i mean there's darkness there's like an oddly epic quality to some of their music as well there's ferocity and spite as we said and two like i think you can hear 
if not an influence or a conversation between the two, I think you can hear maybe similar inspirations between what No Means No is doing and then like the Discord records of the late 80s and early 90s. With Fugazi, I mean, I guess Fugazi would sort of be, you know, the tip of the spear in that scenario. But I mean, there were a lot of really interesting and imaginative bands on Discord at this time, sort of art punk. And I, I think, too, maybe I mean, it invalidates music like this invalidates punk as a as a nomenclature. And it turns punk into more of an idea of a way of doing things, an ethic something uh, less tangible than, you know, a style of music. I got a couple of things to say there. First of all, Fugazi is one of the few bands that I've ever thought had similarities to No Means No, simply because I think No Means No are so singular. Um, right. But I will sometimes be listening to No Means No and thinking, I'm getting a little bit of a Fugazi vibe here. And I haven't listened to a lot of Fugazi, but, uh, you know, I bought one of their albums once. I know I've listened to Repeater because uh, that's a big one for a lot of people. And, and and just knowing you, I'm sure you've played some for me. Not a huge fan, but but I, I but I hear parallels. I, and I and oh I'm, for sure. I know they're there, and that brings. Well, us- you have to think like these bands. Both, I mean, God, Fugazi probably burn up the road as much as No Means No or more. <laughs> yeah, like you know they probably cross paths at some point, played shows together. Yeah, I, w- I would think so. Um, another band that I've never really liked, but have always just had massive respect for is Minutemen. Yeah. And right. I think there's some similarities there, too. Yeah, uh, sure. Because Minutemen were great players, you know. Well, I mean, that was kind of the Minutemen claim to fame. Yeah. It's like, I mean, like these guys could play like, I mean, dude, George Hurley was like such a great drummer. Yeah. And, you know, Mike Watt was a really, really dialed in bassist. I, yeah, I think the thing for me in Minutemen, and I do like Minutemen. Um, and, and, uh, but like the D Boone, uh, guitar tone, that really super wiry, (laughs) like, like Telecaster single coil kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's not my, I like, I'm, I'm a like mind rot dawning kind of a guy. (laughs) Heath Hanlon loves some Minutemen and I've been around Heath for a lot, well, since 1989, he was a singer in that band that I was in and, um, he loves some Minutemen, and I've heard them through him many times over the years. And I think every time I've listened to them with him, I'm always like, yeah, it's cool. And we talk about the good points and the positive points. But then I'm like, I just don't like D. Boone's fucking jangly guitar, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? And and he accepts, and, and we go our different ways. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah. And then you, you were talking about the art punk that was on Discord. And, and I think you made a great, great point about punk that I need to absorb still, right? And it's the same point that I have always been fighting for as a, as a metal patriot almost, which is that it's a much larger, wider range of things than you think it is. And, and I get so upset when people sort of define metal as this one dumb thing. And I think I do that with punk. So after 30 years or whatever it is of love for No Means No as my token punk band, and I think Misfits to some degree too because I love the Misfits, oh, yeah, sure. I, think that, I think that I would do well to like consider punk maybe a wider genre than I, than I do. It's, I mean – you know, its spectrum is about as wide as metals, really. And I guess I d- I've never thought of it that way. I guess I've always thought, okay, metals this vast terrain, punk is this one dumb little thing. That's yeah, that's, I don't, yeah, that's I don't ignorant so. as hell. I know, but but you can understand how I think that sure. simply because I was a metal guy and I was right. growing up, and punk was always this like 
and again, I hate to always equate it just with Sex Pistols and Ramones, but sorry, that's... that's but that, my, you know, that it, stuff is really narrow. It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just rock and roll. It's like judging metal on Pantera like, and Five Finger yeah. Death Punch or something. Oh, gee, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, punk can be Mission of Burma. You know, it can be at the drive-in. I mean, it can be all sorts of things. It can be, it can be the passionate, frightening 10 minutes of real love. By no means that. Right, right. Amazing. Exactly. So, so we, we've drug you a little bit through no means no's kind of longer extrapolated epics here. Let's get back to some of the kind of more ferocious, intense, uh, but still very mathematical stuff. We're going to listen to the title track from zero plus two equals one. Here's a bit of that. finish line and a dead run life is short and love is clean before these masks haloed with snakes hissing like rain on the pavement the blind are deafened and the lame are made dumb for that queer equation this is the sum Zero plus two equals one. sort of splits the difference between their narrative pieces and their you know agile hate punk definitely definitely it's not it's not as fast and raging as a lot of their stuff it's not as slowly unfolding as the other stuff yeah you're right it's right right, right there in that sweet middle 
but it is a very very sweet metal i love that song so much i love like and you hear the brothers too really like the bass and the drums and the narration let's not forget that john wright uh also sings too and i think you'll hear the difference between he's got a great voice he's probably like the better singer of the two technically technically although although yeah yeah i i I, I want rob i want rob too yeah i i feel like zero plus two equals one is remarkable well it's remarkable for a lot of reasons but one reason for me is they seemed a lot more willing than ever before or after to play with textures and different sounds and different sort of instrumentation or sound effects um, they really kind of went cinematic with it in a way that I don't, I'm not sure they did as much before or after. No, I no, I, you're right on the money. Great we hear point. that throughout yeah. the title track. We're going to hear that in another song that we're going to play in a little bit. We we heard it in Ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you said that you know you got into No Means No through the dance uh, review in Metal Maniacs. Plus that right. drummer that Nathan was playing with was into him. What did you then go back to? Uh wrong. Okay, well, good choice. And I absolutely well, and not only because of those two. When when I got into them, I remember that Martin Popoff had you know waxed effusive about them in the Encyclopedia of Heavy Metal, um, and I went back to that and I saw you know he gave Wrong a ten out of ten, and so I went and got that one and it just absolutely blew me away. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that book amongst ourselves, and I think we mentioned it a few episodes ago. Not sure No Means No belongs there, but, I, you know, Martin, as every Canadian writer will and should, they, they have a total Canadian bias. You know, it's nice that No Means No got in there and turned people like you onto it. I think that's great. But, God, I, I they dip into metal sometimes. They are not a metal band. Tangentially, but yes. they're not a metal band. Um, no. But I don't mean to lay down a bunch of rules because we're not about that, and certainly they are not either. We're going to go back to 1988, a very favorite year of ours for many reasons in No Means No Land and otherwise. This is from The Day Everything Became Nothing EP. This is the title track. Now, this is one of those, much like Dance of the Headless Bourgeoisie, that we probably shouldn't play as a snippet where we're going to, but I just don't think we can do a No Means No show without it. Right, I, I tend to agree. Such a crucial, crucial song in their discography. You'll see. I We tried to pick out the best moment from it. And um, let's just check it out.
So I love that song for a bazillion reasons, but I, I guess if you boil it all down, musically it's it's certainly formidable. It's got a great momentum to it. It, it just it's just pumping and pumping and pumping. But it's the narrative. Like I think a lot of No Means No highlights are part of that class of songs where it's really about the narrative. And also the line "It's weird being a Bob" has always been one of my very 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 favorites in, in music history at least the music i know there there are two uh lines in no means no in the no means no oeuvre, um that are two of my favorites ever i had my pinky out when i said that but, and, uh, and apologies to any of our french listeners that word but that's that's one of them it's weird being a bob yes yeah it's amazing yeah. what's your other one we're gonna play it later Oh, okay. okay. No spoilers, man. No, I think that song brings to light something else. It's kind of the the tradition of unexpected rocking. So I, I think that General <laughs> Giant was like a great purveyor of this. Oh, like yeah. a band that plays like super intricate latticed music but occasionally can't resist its own impulse just to freaking rock. Really? And like yeah. No Means No is the same way. You know, this super like agile band – Sometimes they just lock into a groove and just go for it. Yeah, and, and they're the, General Giant's a great parallel to draw uh, because they also had great lyrics yes. as well as fantastic music. I mean, at the end of the day, if you and I had to choose, it's about the music. But when you get a band like General Giant or Rush or No Means No who have incredible lyrics and deliver it so well – it's it's it can be astonishing, and I and I think this is one of those moments. This is one of those songs, and I, and here's the thing about "Day Everything Became Nothing for Me." Their version of the end times in this song is so great because it's it's not about apocalypse. No one screamed. There's no voices from the sky. There's no miracles at the Seven Eleven. In in part of the song we didn't hear. There's just this terrible lack. He says right. Right. He's it's this terrible lack. It's just like. It's nothing. It's not yeah. even, it's kind of anticlimactic. And in the part we heard how everything just quietly dies. Right. You know, I, I, that, that's some pretty great stuff right there. Oh, it's amazing. Doing a No Means No show was tough for a lot of reasons. I'm glad we're not trying to go chronologically because this would be a four-hour show. We've had some listeners huh. say they would listen to a four-hour show, but... Frankly, we just don't want to do it because we have other lives in progress, and um, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not talking. <laughs> Sorry, but um, you know, so 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 part of that was like, do we play stuff from the early material that we I think we both really like and respect? Um, sure. How do we get there? We're not playing anything from Worldhood of the World, their eighth album or whatever. Right. You know, it's just uh, it's hard to choose. We're not playing anything from Mama or Sex Mad. Um, but this one is called uh, Teresa, Give Me That Knife. And this is from Small Parts, Isolated and Destroyed. 
a album title I think you've heard about a zillion times in this episode so far. But this gives you a good sort of like view into what their early material was kind of like. And uh, we also listened to Forget Your Life earlier. That's one of the earliest songs. So, you know, they were they were playing with elongated structures pretty early on yeah. back in 1981. But this is from 88. This is Teresa, Give Me That Knife. And this is really just might as well stand for, you know, some of the uh, stuff on the first two albums. Do you agree with that? Yes. Let's go. Short, sharp shock right there. <laughs> but, you know, it still, it does have that locked-in interplay, like the intricacy. But, yeah, I mean, the the vibe of it, the intent is much more uh, monomaniacal than with the, you know, the later stuff that's got so many sort of concurrent dimensions to it. But they're such formidable players, even in that context. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of like, with the first Decroitzen record, there were a lot of bands doing something sort of similar to what they did, but they had such command over their instruments and and such a formidable vibe um, as as a whole. It just has an entirely different effect. Uh, it has more intensity, you know. And I, I think the same could be said for No Means No. So the next song we're going to play is on uh, 1989's Wrong. This is a song called The Tower. Um, and I think it's a cool song to play um, after Teresa because it has just as much bile, but it's uh, conveyed in a slightly different way, uh, more nuanced, more mature way. Um, but I, I think you can hear the, the link to, to that and the early stuff in this. So without further ado, The Tower.
there's a good example of maybe why it did make Martin Popoff's metal book. And um, I, I've always thought Wrong was probably the most metallic of No Means No albums, although I, I hear that coming in on small parts as well. But yeah, there's there's some metallic elements there, just in terms of like every element of the tower kind of being so forward and being so impassioned and the vocal expulsion matching, you know, the musical expulsion. It's just all right up front. Well, and the the tower itself is sort of an emblem in, you know, in metal history. Yeah. As an abstract thing. And Wrong is definitely the most uniformly intense uh, No Means No record, in my estimation. And I got to tell you, that the icy red part, um, if they had copyrighted that, Discord, Touch and Go, and Amrep would be paying them royalties on the reg. (laughs) But then you you know who would have been coming behind them going, we had that first, Split Ends and Wishbone Ash. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need lives, man. We really need lives. I thought we just said that we couldn't do four-hour shows because we had lives. We have lives. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but you know what it is? It's all about once you reach the finish line at age 70 or 80, whatever, I hope you've packed as much music in as you possibly can. Cannot stress that enough, readers. <laughs> Discogs.com is a great way to do it. <laughs> we are, just for the record, not associated with Discogs.com. <laughs> We'd like to be. We are still associated, by the way, with Lamentations of the Flame Princess. They had to uh, beg out on this episode, not for any uh, lack of love of no means no, but they um, they had their own reasons. But uh, we support Jim Raggi and Lamentations of the Flame Princess we're going to move on to the band's Curious Ninth album. This is an interesting one. This is this is one called One, O-N-E. And it was their final one on Alternative Tentacles. Their final and tenth album came out on Antacid Audio. But this is an interesting album. This has six mostly what I'd consider kind of plotting and sedate and very serious no-means-no tracks and it ends with two songs that are on the album proper. They're not like bonus tracks or anything. There's, uh, it ends with a version of Ramon's Beat on the Brat. And then also a 15-minute version of Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. And I think that's the longest song in their history. And I think it's great that it's Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Yeah, of course. We're going to play a tune from this, however, called uh, Under the Sea. It's the second song on the album. Uh, this album came out in 2000 and um, give you a taste of what Nomi's Know was sounding like 11 years on from wrong. I see like stars above the Zaudazi, like rain upon a dark sea wall, will those teardrops ever fall?
Rob Wright is one incredible bassist, and I think a lot of it has to do as much with his tone as it does his agility and dexterity. Yeah, and it's also the bifurcation between the guitars and the bass. Yeah. You know, they're one of those great bands like Voivod that splits it kind of democratically, you yeah. know? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you. His tone's incredible. What about the flange drums on there? It was a reach back to the 80s. <laughs> Go like an 80s that like No Means No never even explored. <laughs> an 80s that they probably hated, in fact. You got a lot um, yeah, and like I think that song is like about as intense as anything else, but it, it just churns instead of seeds, you know. The churning is part of that album, like, and I think yeah. there's a, there, I think there's a point of demarcation between somewhere around zero plus two, and then the next album. They, uh, why do they call me Mister Happy? Where that album definitely, yeah, that album mm-hmm. definitely starts to indulge in that aspect of no means no exactly exactly and i think there's more of a leaden kind of rounder thicker tone to that stuff going forward than there ever was before and you know then that's cool because that just made no means no's journey even more necessary in terms of like you know where are they going to go what are they going to do with this sound what are they going to do with what they do you know i think they made it interesting in their later albums uh, because I think you and I agree that small parts, everything became nothing wrong, and zero plus two are is the peak era. Yeah, but I, 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 yeah. I'm a big fan of Mr. Happy though. Well, no, me too. There's a yeah. lot of great stuff to come, and that's the thing. They yeah. they kind of changed not only um, the way they did certain things, but a lot of it was you know on the production side in terms of how it was right. like aesthetically and texturally presented. But you know, we're gonna go back to zero plus two equals one because we love it <laughs> that much. We're actually gonna play two in a row. We're going to play Every Day I Start to Ooze, and then we're going to go into Mary. These are absolute highlights of this album. I think we both agree. And my other favorite No Means No lyric is in Every Day I Start to Ooze. Uh, okay. Well, we'll see We'll see if you can ferret that out, listeners. A bold plan drawn up by assholes to screw morons. News at 11. But first, a long, serious look at what's seeping from that open sore. Perhaps you should... Stop picking at it! I never felt so alone. I never felt so used. I never felt so excited. It was those personal acts. Those personal acts that cut up the crap and served it for breakfast. You don't fuck! My mom phoned up the police today just to say hello. Hello! My girlfriend has been missing for two weeks. I guess that's what happens when you walk the streets with a bag in your head and a sign that says, Every day, every day, every day I start to lose. Every day, every day, every day I start to lose.
is a dumb fuck. Listen, listen carefully now. Here's the answer. It rhymes with acts. Why, it's those personal acts, of course. Those personal acts. Those suicide packs. Those carelessly stored razor blades in the hands of small children. It's my face smeared on the pavement. I think that in that perfect world scenario we sometimes talk about, No Means No would have been as big as Primus. And Primus would have been as big as No Means No. Yeah, sure. I love Primus. I think they're great. I own every album, I believe. Um, but Every album? Yeah. yeah really? d- yep. I've followed them pretty consistently. The reason I bring that up, though, is because I just feel like Primus were good, but not as good as their popularity. Um, yeah. because they didn't, they didn't keep making frizzle fry and they didn't keep making seas of cheese. And that's, yeah, sure. that's, that's where I'm coming at it from. Uh, no disrespect at all. Great band. No, uh, no, I, I go up to, um, to pork soda. Yeah. You know, but no means no to me, like sh- were 10 times better and should have been 10 times bigger and they weren't. And I think those songs reveal why I, I might stick my neck out and say that. Right. I agree. Okay. Glad agree. you agree. Uh, yeah, but- there's like, but there's a, um, there's sort of a, a threat to no means no, that's like not present in Primus. Primus was a very, I mean, they were a, you know a lighthearted band. They were like a band of in- incredible players, but they were always sort of tongue in cheek. I think there's like a sense of fear in no means no 
that is absent in, in Primus. Oh, that's a great. That's an excellent and, point. You you might be right. Yeah, I that doesn't. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. But that if we're talking about the masses and accessibility, right. may, maybe that's why. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I think musically they had every bit the talent that Primus had, and perhaps oh, more. Maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, every day. You mentioned a lyric there. I, I think I know what it is because <laughs> it's one of my I favorites. Think you, I think you might. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the lyric. Um, if every fourth insect is a beetle, then every fourth human is a dumb fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's that's some wisdom right there. That is some serious fucking wisdom. It is. <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. What about so, every day I start to ooze? Like, does that mean like he's oozing a little bit every day, but then it, he pulls back because he starts to ooze, but he doesn't like fully ooze? Like and then and then and then, and this thing is happening every day, so it's you know it's a bit of a of a bother, but it's not like some horrible like thing that's got him laid up in bed every day. He's he's a, no, he's, it's just it's premature oozing. It's just he's starting to ooze. Okay, just I'm, I'm starting to trying to figure that out. Let's start again tomorrow. I mean, that, okay, this this band, all this stuff. You know, we've listened to 14 songs now. Like, to me, they're kind of Church of the Subgenius meets Mensa meets Bob and Doug McKen- <laughs> meets Bob and Doug McKenzie. Like, this is where this is where they land, and it's a very strange place. Like, there's no other band like this. This is going to be underscored by the song "Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed," um, which is by far the most I've said that phrase ever in my life, and I love it. Um, but what a no, great title. Yeah, no, this is a great title, great album. And the title track here, it's this seven and a half minute epic. What I love about this is it might have the most scenes and twists of any No Means No song. I mean, it's, and it's also a very clear and obvious intentional break from punk rock rules. Now, we've talked about the rules. We've talked about what punk actually is. And I need to expand my mind on that a little bit. I do think it breaks some premises, right? Oh, yeah. I think they flaunted punk's convention pretty early on. So to me, the small part song really just in its, in its sort of multifaceted movements, it just kind of does that. Uh, one of the best examples of, I, I think them reaching as far as they ever reach. And this is from 1988. This is the title track to, I'll say it again, small parts isolated and destroyed. <laughs>
What can what can you do but just laugh a little bit and exactly <laughs> it's amazing. We're gonna move on to the river. This comes from why do they call me Mister Happy? The follow up to zero plus two. We haven't featured this era at all so far. Uh, this is one of the stronger points. Yeah, I, I think so of that album. But uh, I, I I do I think this is an underrated album. And I and if you're into No Means No and you don't know it, or if you are new to No Means No and you start going through their discography, I would urge you after checking out the uh, the four essentials that Jeff mentioned earlier, checking out this album. It's very interesting. I think an accomplished album as well. Yeah, let's get into it. This is the river.
Yeah, some pretty profound lyrics there. Emotionally and, of course, musically, just really powerful stuff. Very, very deep. I, I didn't tell you this, Hunter, but about, I don't know, five days ago when I was preparing all the snippets for this episode, I was having a really sleepless night, uh, or at least around between like three and seven. I had one of these rare nights where I just woke up and I, and I couldn't get back to sleep or I just went through like 15 minutes of fitful sleep and then like, you know, 15 minutes of waking. And it was I awful. Every night. Uh, well, I know. And sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I also had, I think, you know, my experience, my only near-death experience was um, almost drowning in a kayak accident. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so <laughs> during this fitful sleep and this song was going through my head because I was listening to a ton of No Means No and preparing these snippets. And I'm sure the river, of course, was one of them. Um, but th- that those lines were, this was the only stanza going through my head. And that is, uh, I can see you're not very strong as the current sweeps you past me. And I can see your head going down as helpless your cries find me. And that and that part, musically, lyrically, everything, melodically, everything just kept going through my head. And that was really disturbing. It's no yeah, wonder, I imagine. No wonder I couldn't get back to sleep. And I was having I was having like a lot of, you know, stuff in my mind regarding my day, my day job and things like that. So um so that was weird. But um I don't know. At this at this point I guess we gotta thank Rob and John Wright for such genius. I mean, like tr- truly I if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that Jeff and I don't throw that word around lightly. No. Uh, uh, rarely at all, in fact, but I, I think that it is absolutely appropriate in this instance. I think these guys are geniuses. And I suppose it wouldn't be that one or the other are a genius. It's just that that combined brotherhood and the music they made together for so long, it was so singular. Because that, that's the thing, too, with No Means No. They're, so, they're one of those most special of bands, that total elite who like scratch an itch that no other band can do. And, 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 they, and they occupy an emotional space. And they fill a certain void that no other band can claim. So to me, that's no means no belonging in this super special family of bands. And that's why I think we re- revere them so highly. Totally. Totally. Episode 27 examines an album near and dear to the hearts of Jeff and to me. Spiral Architects, one and only record, a skeptic's universe, a tech metal classic, maybe, and we will maybe hash this out in the episode, the tech metal classic. There's one other that contends with it, but I think that uh, Skeptic's Universe is a worthy adversary. Hmm. Um, So we'll probably play most of the album, or snippets from most of the album. If you haven't heard the album before, you don't know the band, you were in for a real treat. If you were into anything remotely technical and brilliant. Never hesitate to send us feedback, hate mail, Praise, whatever you like, to Radical Research Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also appreciate uh, everybody's enthusiasm regarding our, our shirt sale. We've got more coming. We've gotten through some donations through PayPal, uh, and that PayPal ID is Radical Research Podcast at gmail.com. It really helps support what we do. We're going to go out with another No Means No song because we just haven't played enough. Um, this is just a little snippet from their one album. That came out in 2000, their ninth and penultimate album. This is their little take on Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Rob and John Wright for the excellence. Thank you, sirs.